1: Design Matters is on summer break, but we thought it was a good time to repost some of our favorite episodes. This one was originally posted in March of 2016. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 11 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with writer and illustrator Myra Kalman about how ordinary objects inspire her art and about her collaborations with the likes of Mark Morris and Isaac Mizrahi.
2: If things are going well, there's a lot of trust. If you have to talk too much about something, I think that you might be in a little bit of trouble.
1: Here's Debbie Millman.
0: Myra Kalman has authored and illustrated some of the most remarkable books of our time, including The Principles of Uncertainty and the Pursuit of Happiness. Her work has appeared on countless covers of The New Yorker, in museums, and on the stage. Today, I'm going to talk with Myra Kelman about her latest book, Beloved Dog, and about the twists and turns of her remarkable life and career. Myra Kelman, welcome to Design Matters.
2: Hi Debbie, good to be here.
0: We haven't had a Design Matters interview now in 10 years. That's amazing. You were on it feels my like very, a minute ago. It doesn't right? it? Yeah. Doesn't yeah. it? I want to congratulate you on winning the AIGA medal, so well deserved. Thank you. And I want to start by talking a little bit about your upbringing. Your parents left Russia to go to Palestine and you were born in Tel Aviv. Your family moved to New York when you were 4 years old. Do you have any memories of what it was like to live in Tel Aviv when you were a very little girl?
2: I have such vivid memories that they're probably more real to me than what's going on right now, which tells you something about a life, but... We went back in the summers and we still have an apartment there, so those memories have, have become my daily life. But uh, it was an incredible time of uh, beautiful sand and sea and, and cafes with fluttering awnings and uh, music. Uh, you know, people coming from all over the world, tango playing in the restaurants and quite uh, beautiful ice cream cups with little, with little crackers in them.
0: I've spent a lot of time in Israel, and I think the food in Israel is better than almost any place on the planet, aside from maybe Italy.
2: That's true. That's true. It's a super amazing food place.
0: You said that when you moved to New York, you felt like an outsider.
2: Why? And did that feeling ever go away? Well, I felt like an outsider in the best sense of the word. I loved it. It wasn't as if I was unhappy. But I guess I became a journalist when I was five years old, and I was really very keen about observing and just looking and taking it all in. And thinking that it was all fantastic, I, you know, I went from this sandy little town to this gigantic city, I felt comfortable, but I felt, oh, I better, I better observe a bit. In an interview on
0: The Great Discontent, you spoke about how your mother, Sarah, encouraged your creative life and how she took you to concerts and operas, to the library, and how you sat together and read. Will you close your whole life?
2: yes we i was madly in love with her as she was with me so we had this uh, fantastic bond and it never and it never stopped you stated that though she wasn't an artist she
0: was a homemaker she was quite gorgeous and amazing and interesting and for you she was very much a model of a person who had great integrity honesty and said what she thought and taught you there was no right way to think about things in reviewing that description, Myra, I felt that it sounded how I would describe you.
2: That's (laughs) good. That's that would be a great thing to be able to say Though she wasn't capable of lying. And I can actually lie. (laughs) <laughs> so, so there are some di- differences, uh, besides the fact that she was gorgeous. But but uh, I think I really did absorb a lot of her persona, and and it, it serves me well. I think I'm happy about that. And do you have siblings? I do have an older sister. And does she like your mother as well? Are you very she, similar? Yeah. She loves my mother too. Uh, I, I'm maybe I'm a little bit more extreme in my adoration. <laughs>
0: You also said that your mother had no real need to have any information of any kind about anything. And I think that her map of the United States, which you include in your book, The Principles of Uncertainty, is a really wonderful example of this. In the center of the map is a great blob of American landscape in which she wrote, sorry, the rest is unknown. Thank you. Um, And you've stated that you take that to mean the rest is unknown. Who
2: cares? Who cares? Go to hell. Um, how did that map influence you? Well, it's the absolute expression of a person who really is so irreverent and has really has a great sense of humor, but also is doing it naturally, not trying to be funny, not trying to be coy. And so, you know, not getting it right, but just getting it the way that you need to get it is really the point of it all. And so everything was acceptable Except- and, and, and artistic. Yeah. You know, that sense of the unconditional love that you were talking about before absolutely came through. And also the sense of you should daydream because that's the right thing to do. No worries. You know, read a lot, play your piano. Myra, do you have any sense of how rare that is? I hear that from people, but I, you know, I can't imagine how else it would be.
0: Your father was a diamond salesman, and he traveled a great deal for his work. So you were raised in a house of women, your mother, your aunt, your sister, and you. And you stated that your encouragement came not from being told to try any specific thing, but from being loved and told that whatever you did was great. Did you really have the sense, or do you still—and if you did, do you still have the sense that what you do is great?
2: No, I think that what I do is terrible. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm constantly tormented. and that's, I mean, But I think that's the nature of creating anything, that if you don't have doubts, then there's some, I think there's something wrong with you if you don't have doubts. So there is the duality that you have tremendous insecurity and a tremendous need and a drive to do the work despite that or because of that. I don't know. So I am always worried and always waking up in the middle of the night wondering how I could have done it better. And next time I will do it better. And that kind of propels me into being very excited and uh, almost hysterical about any project I do. <laughs> hysterical in a good way? No, in a terrible way. Oh, no, but no. again, I don't, you know, those, I've, I've come to the point where I think that the nature of Worrying or doubting or or you know fretting uh, is part of the process.
0: You romanticize it in such a way that worrying and fretting almost feels totally acceptable and even more than okay. It, it feels almost aspirational. You know, I'm in a good mood today, so it sounds like fun, but it's <laughs> no, not. No, <laughs> but I mean, even just from from reading all your work and and experiencing the sort of beautiful pathos of knowing that there's a part of us that's all a little bit broken or a little bit askew or a little bit or maybe a lot imperfect. Somehow reading your work and being involved in your world somehow makes it feel all okay. It's almost like what your mother was doing for you with the unconditional love you do for your readers in that you allow them to feel okay in the world as is. So thank you for that.
2: You're welcome. And I say, what choice do we have? But thank you. You attended the High School of Music
0: and Art, which is now the LaGuardia High School of Music and Art and Performing Arts. Yeah. Um, you studied music. Right. You also had piano lessons and dance lessons when you were growing up.
2: At that point, did you want to be a musician? No, I knew I wasn't very good. I was good enough to get into music and art. So some proficiency and some feeling, but absolutely not. Once I got there and I saw what real musicians were like, I said, well, that's not going to happen. But I never thought that would happen anyway. It was just, a, and, uh, you know, I adore music and I still, that's really an important part of my life and part of my work that's happening now, but I, I would never be a musician. What instruments did you play when you were growing up? I played the violin and the piano.
0: So you did play the violin when
2: I a saw your um elements of style
0: opera, you seemed to be playing a I violin was air, yeah, was quite air playing. proficiently. <laughs> and I remember thinking, My God, is there anything this woman cannot
2: do? Well, and I cannot play the violin anymore, I was pretending, but I knew but I knew how to pretend. <laughs>
0: <laughs> when did you decide that you wanted to be an artist and a writer?
2: I had decided that I wanted to be a writer when I was a little kid. When I read, we you know was reading so much, and I read Pippi Longstocking, and I said, "That's it. That's that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to write books, and I'm going to be a strong and wonderful girl." Uh, that that disappears quickly when you when you go into your adolescence, and then everything is very shaky. But uh, I knew that I wanted to be a writer when I was writing in high school and college, and everything seemed tur- turgid. Or is it turgid? Turgid. Clearly, I I wasn't that good um, with my words. So, at any rate, I decided that I couldn't write anymore, and it would be quite easy and delightful to draw my stories. And it was, you know, Saul Steinberg was a big influence in a lot. Of, there was there was a, a real something in the air about I can do this in another way and I don't have to write. What was it about Pippi that you liked so much? Well, the writing is fantastic. Astrid Lindgren is, is sublime. And just that there's a heroine who is a brave, independent, saucy, feisty, fearless girl. I mean, who wouldn't love that?
0: Did you do your hair like her in the no, braids?
2: But I, we did that for Lulu. Our, our, I did. I put, I put wire in my braids to That's have what we hair did for like Pippi. Yeah.
0: yeah. You attended uh, New York University in the late 60s, and that is where you met the man who would become your husband, Tibor Kalman. Tell me about your first meeting. Was it love at first sight? Well, I think for him it was, but... <laughs>
2: <laughs> we were in uh, in summer flunk out class in economics, and we were both on the verge of being thrown out of school after our first year of doing very badly or, or not really caring. And uh, he asked me to go out for a cup of coffee. So we went to Washington Square Park, and he drank black coffee and smoked a cigarette. I don't think he had done either yet, <laughs> but I think he was trying to impress me. And and I thought, well, this is okay. I liked – I you know, but what, what happened was that we knew immediately that we had found each other. Really? Yeah. I mean, we broke up a few times after. After that it's not as if it stayed but you actually have told me you broke up three times yeah, that's probably that's true
0: why were you in a flunk out class for economics I can't Understand why? Well, you'd... we
2: had to f- do our basic things. I mean, oh, we had other okay. classes that we had flunked out of, but we met in the <laughs> economics class. <laughs> so you dropped out
0: of NYU. You yes, both dropped both out did. of NYU. Was it because of academic reasons, or was it because you just lost interest in that type of education?
2: I spent most of my time in cafes writing bad poetry and knitting uh, sweaters for Tibor, as I've written, and and he was trying to you know blow up the math building. It was uh, the, you know Vietnam and SDS and the sense of that there were so many other things to be doing besides going to school. So it didn't compel me. In, in a way that I was motivated. And it, and he certainly was, you know, ready to go to the barricades. And then he went to Cuba with the Vance Ramos Brigade. So it's a little bit fuzzy exactly what happened, but also, you know, the sense of feminism exploding in the air in those days. So there was so much going on. School seemed like the least important thing to us. Do you ever regret dropping out? Uh, no, not at all.
0: In your official bio, it said that in 1979, Tibor started M & Company, but didn't
2: you start it together? No, he started it with two partners. Well, Carol Buchanan and yeah. Liz Travado, who were friends and who he had, who had met at Barnes & Noble when he was the creative director. And I was always there as a kind of... You know, there with him, clearly, uh, there uh, as a kind of muse, as a kind of... We are the M, in, M the and and company, Myra. So I'm going to take that, right, I'm going to take that as a real thing. And that, and that sense that I was doing other things, I started to illustrate, and I would always be around part of the time. So, and the dialogue that we had constantly was, was about work and about all of that creativity. So, you know, I know that I was a big influence and a big presence there, but I wasn't official. You've stated that historically, M & Company was
0: in the right place at the right time. There was an audience for the kind of work we wanted to do, and there was the ability to make it happen. And I felt like M & Company has been so influential in so many ways, not only culturally, not only in the community of graphic design, but in the great number of people that have come out of M & Company to then go on and create remarkable work. People like Emily Oberman, Alex Isley, Stephen Doyle. I mean, the list goes on and on. Stefan Sagmeister. It feels a little bit more than the right place at the right time. That that feels a little bit too serendipitous.
2: Oh, well, you know, Tibor was uh, an absolute genius, and there, and to me, the constant inventiveness, the constant thrill of how his mind worked, was just, you know, just uh, exhilarating in every way. And, and you know, when you ask about the, the determination to do a project through the worries, I mean, the, for me, it was the Tibor factor. I really understood and learned what it meant to be with somebody who was not daunted, who said, if you have an idea, that's fine, but you better do something about it. Otherwise, what do you what's the point? And so that to me became the natural part of our life. And his his, uh, you know, very demanding, uh, incredibly strong personality. When he was in the room, there was nobody else in the room. I mean, that there was a lot there was a lot of Tibor to contend with, Uh, but it was extraordinary and there was nobody like him.
0: In the mid-1980s, you published your first children's book, Stay Up Late, illustrating the lyrics from a song by musician David Byrne, whom you met when he hired Tibor and M & Company to design his album covers for Talking Heads. What was it like working with David Byrne at that time? I mean that was really in the moment for Talking Heads as well.
2: No, it was it was very heady, but you know it was like super gawky time, super like nobody could really talk to anybody because everybody was incredibly eccentric and and in kind of. Uh Socially inept. We were all socially inept. So we'd go out to dinner. I don't think anybody spoke to anybody. But I had complete freedom to do whatever I wanted. And that was the, that was the atmosphere also, that the point is that you should be inventive. And the point is that you should say whatever you're thinking about. And, and through that editing process, you come up with the best ideas, hopefully. At
0: the beginning of the interview, you said that you became a journalist at age five. And though you've illustrated and written dozens of books since... You've said that the title of artist actually makes you uncomfortable. You much prefer and embrace the title of journalist. Why is that?
2: Well, you know, it's a kind of, um, kind of cliché to think that the artist goes into a studio and has to come up with something. That's really not how I work. I like to have the connection of an assignment. I like to have the connection of people around me and or waiting for something and that there is a kind of a construct to what I'm doing. And so as a journalist, I really do feel that my job is if I'm working for The Times or for The New Yorker, go out and look at something and then send back your report, the painting and the writing. So it's very clear to me that that's something that I really adore doing. Tibor died of cancer
0: in 1999 and in your most recent book, Beloved Dog, you state, when Tibor died, the world came to an end and the world did not come to an end. That is something you learn. I first read that while going through some truly what felt like a bottomless pit of grief at loss that i had experienced and it gave me great comfort but I can't imagine coming up with that thought <laughs> to begin with. How did you learn that, Myra?
2: You know, when he was ill, and he was ill for five years, and so the process of that was devastating. But through it all, we had you know, two children, and we kept working and, and taking care of the family. I was sure that I wouldn't be able to survive when he died. I was sure that it would really be over for me, and somehow the years would continue. And then in some crazy kind of, you know, way that I don't understand, I felt like I had taken on his courage and, uh, and worked with a force and a fierceness that I hadn't had before. I in, mean, of course, you understand that time is short and that um, to make the most of your time, but I was able to. And I also had, you know, when you have children, you have to rally. In a 2003 interview in iMagazine
0: with the great Stephen Heller, you stated, Even though feminism burst into being one rainy night, 1969, Tibor and I still had a conventional relationship in the sense that I was in the background. I was insecure about dealing forcefully with the outside world. What made me come to the fore was Tibor's death. Maybe I had learned more than I knew from Tibor, and maybe I realized that life is short, so why not do whatever you can think of that excites you? There's probably a myth about a woman not being able to really thrive without a man after a lifelong relationship. But people are incredibly resourceful. There are kids and friends and ideas and traveling to China. You know, life. When did you stop being insecure and felt more courageous about dealing with the outside world. Was it immediate or was it just sort of a a growing sense that you had something that you wanted to express?
2: It was absolutely immediate, which startled me, really startled me. I mean, I've always been forthright in what I think. I've never been shy to say what what my opinion is. But right away I said, I'm going to do what I need to do here.
0: You said it took a long time to become an illustrator. And in order to actually become a working illustrator, you talked to as many people as you could and would just ask them, would you like to hire me to do a magazine piece? Really? Is that how you did it? You know, I had a
2: portfolio. I, wasn't just, yeah. I wasn't just yeah, stopping people on the <laughs> Excuse street. Me. Yeah, Excuse exactly. me. Exactly. Anybody. Well, anybody. But, uh, you know, the sense that you, in back in the day, with the portfolio and drop it off and expect a million rejections and get them. And, you know, I, in some file, I have all my rejection slips from the New York or in other places saying, you know, good job or not good job, just, you know, get out of here. But, you know, I, I don't know why I had this kind of optimism that, that carried through that uh, no, I'm going to pursue this. So, it, you know, it takes a while to do anything.
0: So you got rejected several times from The New Yorker before you got your first commission from oh, The New Yorker. Oh, many times, yeah. So w- you just submitted your portfolio or did you submit actual work for them specifically?
2: Both, it, both. Both. Yeah, I would do drawings that I thought would be sensational covers and uh, and not quite. It was only uh, when we were living in Rome in, you know, 30, whatever it was, 25 years after I started that Francoise Moulin, uh got in touch and said, would you like to do a cover? So she had seen enough of my work in different places, of course, and said, I think you could do this.
0: Talk about the Misery Parade, one of my all-time favorite I was just looking at
2: the the Misery Day Parade. Uh, That was an early cover for The New Yorker. And, you know, you go to look at parades and everybody seems so chipper and super dandy and ducky. And you think, really? And so (laughs) why don't we have a parade to show what we really feel like? And, of course, February is this dismal month. So... It was a perfect parade, you know, like the uh, Paralyzed by Panic Brigade. And right. <laughs> stuff I
1: mean, this like is that. is exactly <laughs> what I
0: mean about somehow making it absolutely okay to be part of the Misery Brigade. Right. You know, you just feel somehow the solidarity with the human race in, in yeah. looking at your work. Well, who isn't miserable? I mean, <laughs> yeah, <those> exactly, so. <laughs> exactly. Um, Let's talk a little bit about your collaborations. I'd like to name people that you've collaborated with, and I'd love it if you could share what it was like or an anecdote or just a word or an idea. So first, of course, our wonderful Isaac Mizrahi, with whom you've designed fabric for. You also appeared as a duck in his production of Peter and the Wolf at the Guggenheim, um, wherein you wore tutu and flippers. So talk about your relationship and and your work with Isaac.
2: Uh, He's a a dear a dear and darling friend and man and human being in, in the greatest sense of the word and has such capacity for generosity of spirit. So, and very funny, of course. So, uh, you know, from the minute we met, we were just, we fell in love. And, uh, and now we're neighbors. And so if he needs a duck, you know, he knows who to call. He told me that he has what he believes is the
0: largest Myra Kelman collection in the world. I think probably he has a lot of paintings.
2: Okay, Mark Morris, with whom you've designed sets for his ballets. Mark Morris is another genius. He's, uh, I tremble before him. He's a formidable person. So, uh, you know, he asked me to do a, a project once, and I said, I said, yes, of course. He said, you know, you don't have to answer yes. You're allowed to say no. And I thought, <laughs> it's very kind of him to say that, but he'd probably kill me if I said no. So uh, we've had a great time. Also, that sense of, of uh, being able to do what you want to do with people who are smart and funny and strange, hurrah.
0: You worked on an opera for the elements of style with Nico Muli, and then again on a piece for the principles of uncertainty. And in working with Nico, you stated that entering into that world and not knowing what the outcome would be was a big risk yet you did it anyway. And you met Nico, I think, when he was, what,
2: 12? Yeah, Nico and I, we were in Rome. We were in Rome, and he was 12, and I was older. And he became part of the family. You know, he was my kid's age. So there was this fantastic connection. He and his mother were at the American Academy. She's a painter, uh, Bunny Harvey. And so... We just became friends and he would play the piano and I would sing. I, I can't even I I can't believe how I would torture him with those kind of afternoons. What kinds of things did you sing? Like Italian so, Italian love songs. Oh how marvelous. <laughs> yes. So uh and then when he was older and came to Columbia he worked for m Company and then he worked for me. So the connection was always there. And so how did you go about collaborating with him
0: on an opera when you had never done something like that before. How do you start collaborating when you don't even know what that means? Well,
2: Nico does the composing. (laughs) I was like, we had separate tasks. So I had a few desires that, you know, there were a few texts that I wanted to use and a few pieces that I wanted to have. And I also wanted to have uh, an orchestra of percussionists who were not musicians, so I could have a part in the the show, uh, including Isaac and Rick and my sister and a few other friends. So... I said, there are a few things that I want in it, like uh, things that I collect, like clattering teacups and saucers and typewriters. Wasn't there an egg an egg beater? Yeah, egg beaters. because there's an egg beater in the book. So all of these mundane objects that fascinate me, that I paint, that I really love, I thought that they could become a presence in this counterpoint with real musicians and real singers. What about these objects, these instruments, did you find so
0: fascinating?
2: You know, they're all designed so... Uh, if you like how they're designed, then you really love them. And, of course, they tell stories and they have relationships to times of day and the thing you drink your coffee from and what are you doing when you're drinking your coffee and, you know, who are you talking to or who are you having a fight with and, you know, what shoes are you going to wear then? You know, it's it's all, a, it's all the same thing. You also
0: collaborated with Daniel
2: Handler, uh, a.k.a. Lemony
0: Snicket, and Michael Pollan illustrating their books. Is there a different approach you take when you're illustrating somebody else's words? Or is it very similar to when you're illustrating your own words?
2: Well, I'm a little bereft that I've given up part of the control of the book, so
0: <laughs> I'm
2: incredibly polite, but maybe a little bit sad. And uh, no, I, I'm looking at the text the way that I would if I was illustrating something for a magazine and just seeing what feels right. And then there's a, a back and forth about what's working and what might not be working. And of course, with a wonderful editor also, if things are going well, there's a lot of trust. If, if you have to talk too much about something, I think that you might be in a little bit of trouble. Can you talk a little bit about your process of painting,
0: which I know is a gruesome question, but I really, truly am curious. Do you sketch or
2: photograph your subjects first? How do you go about starting a painting? I spend a lot of time wandering around, so I'm photographing a lot. And then I have books and magazines, so I'm collecting a lot of reference that, that's up on the wall in a scattered way. I'm not sure what's going to happen and why I've taken it, but I know I'm going to use it for something. And some things I fall so in love with it, I paint them over and over again. And then I'm always sketching before I go to paint and writing and uh, and changing it and changing it and writing many drafts before I finally say, okay, this is it, I'm ready to paint.
0: Myra, your work has really evolved over the years. I was actually somewhat skeptical when Isaac said he had one of the largest, if not the largest, collection of Myra Kalman in the world because I very well may be up there, too. Um, so I have a lot of work from your early years and work that is more recent. and. It feels like the colors that you've been using are a lot denser. feels like color is a lot more important in
2: your work. There was a lot more white earlier on. Yeah, that's, I'm definitely becoming more adept, perhaps, and, and have more depth in painting. And I'm using gouache in a thicker way, and, and I'm starting to use oil paint. So, you know, it's, it's become more painterly as opposed to more naive and, and drawing and sketchy.
0: Let's talk about your columns for The New York Times, The Principles of Uncertainty, which was the first, and then and The Pursuit of Happiness. Um, The Principles of Uncertainty was in 2006, and it was essentially a narrative journal of your life. Despite the fact that it really was a very um, poignant journal of your life, you've said how do you know who you are? Half the time I do not know who I am. There is not one static place. How do you stay so centered?
2: Well, that's a mystery. <laughs> the end. Okay then. The end. <laughs> In the pursuit of happiness, that that was
0: a year-long exploration of American history and democracy and you revealed that you're a big fan of President Abraham Lincoln and even went on to write a book about Abraham Lincoln. What is it about Abraham Lincoln that you love so much?
2: Well, it's. I don't think anybody could uh, study Lincoln and not fall in love with him. He was one of the greatest humanists in the history of the world and a, a very brilliant man. But I think that the kindness and the inte- the intersection of kindness and intelligence, is really something very interesting to look at. And he prevailed in extraordinary times. He was he was not soft by any means, obviously, but uh, he had uh, the the great love of humanity, which is really something that that shines through through all of these decades. Let's talk about your latest book, Beloved Dog.
0: You did not always love dogs. In fact, your mom felt that dogs were bloodthirsty beasts gone undercover, waiting for the perfect opportunity to upend a home or lunge at the throat of an unsuspecting little girl. That's accurate. (laughs) (laughs) So all that changed when you met Pete, the Irish Wheaton Terrier that stole your heart. Pete, the color of pink champagne. Talk about Pete meeting pete
2: why did you get pete uh well we got pete for very uh for very sad reasons because when tibor was ill and the kids were little uh, people were saying that what we needed in the house what would help for the mood of the house was to get a dog and a dog would be an incredible uh mood elevator and 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 a bringer of joy and fun and happiness and and it was true but i was you know i was a little bit you know i was nervous at first
0: How did you even allow a dog into the house if you felt that
2: somehow he was going to upend your home and
0: lunge at the throat of your unsuspecting little girl? That's another mystery. You know, you
2: just (laughs) – things happen and all of a sudden your brain just does a swivel and you go, okay. I think the the most important decisions are made without any thought at all. Really? Yeah. Do you ever regret those decisions or do you feel like they're always good ones? No, I think that the decisions made without thinking are thrilling. Uh, because that that's your life, that's your whole life with with all of the twists and turns, and if you didn't do them, I mean, I might think like, "Oh, that wasn't so great, but of course, I had to do that. You love spontaneity, I do I like spontaneity that isn't insane, yeah,
0: so Pete became your constant companion, he was your muse. Your mother even grew to love him, from what I understand. Is it true she made him platters of blintzes and schnitzel that were only for him? No one no was, one allowed, else to was touch? allowed to
2: touch them. Yeah, it's true. It was extraordinary. And she knit him sweaters, of course, with his initial on it. Uh, P. Beautiful Bauhaus P. Yeah. I
0: read in a wonderful article in Vogue that you never consciously realized how often you were painting dogs and putting them in your stories, but it became clear to you that over the last however many years, you'd been obsessed with dogs. You've also written quite a number of books now about Pete. So talk about your relationship to dogs, your unconscious and now your conscious relationship. Why, why do you think they were showing up so much in your work?
2: Well, they're hilarious and they're so heartrending, and they're so earnest and they're so nutty that you just, I mean, as, as entities in our world, as we're walking around the city, I don't understand how you could not notice and obsess about all the dogs. You stated that
0: you and Pete were a couple <laughs> and that you realized that he loved you above all others well, that's, and that yeah that's for sure. Children realized that he loved you above all others and they also wondered if you loved him above all others. What do you think it is about dogs that make them so unconditionally lovable?
2: First of all, they don't speak. Let's start with that. They They don't don't speak. (laughs) That's really big. I mean, if you were with somebody who didn't speak, uh, you'd probably like them all the time. I know. I don't. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? So uh, you know, everybody talks too much and gives their opinion and needs and needs uh, support and needs encouragement. And dogs don't need any of that. So you don't have to give them anything which is, you know, an incredibly selfish thing for people to do. But you don't have to give them anything except your presence, Plates of schnitzel. And, you know, and some schnitzels, you know, feed them. But but uh, the expectation is, is really just be who you are and I love you. You know, what more do you need? You are working on an illustrated
0: edition of the autobiography of Alice B. Toklas. Talk about that. Can you tell us a bit about it?
2: I wish I, I, wish I had to leave right now and go to Paris because that's what I would want to do. I just, you know, I adore her and I adore Alice B. Toklas. I just think Gertrude and Alice were sensational in their, you know, extreme and eccentricities, and just the life that they lived. So I do want to travel to the south of France where they lived and go to visit their apartment, which I think I'm going to have access to. Though of course it won't be the same, and uh, just immerse myself. Go to the cafe where. Gertrude decided if she was going to buy that Cézanne or not. So that's, you know, that's one of the projects that I'm working on.
0: And is that going to be a book of your own writing as well as, or are you using somebody else's text?
2: No, I'm going to use the, the te- I'm just illustrating the actual text. Oh, that so Gertrude the actual text, te- yes. And I'll probably add an essay in the beginning or the end. You've said that there's
0: a fluidity between the narrative word and the narrative picture. And I'm wondering if you could elaborate and Talk about in what way there is this fluidity for you.
2: Uh, I'm probably really influenced a lot by the, the, the Dadaists and the futurists who found no boundaries between language and art and text and that, the intersection of how you play with words and how you play with paintings. So, and, and perhaps coming from another country and learning English and just falling in love with that language and falling in love with words and letter forms. I mean, it all comes to play in a very, in a very uh, vivid way. Do you have favorite words? It depends on the on the week or the month, but you know sometimes I latch onto something and I don't stop saying it until people around me say, "Please stop saying that," or else I can't. I don't know what what recalcitrant. <laughs> I don't know what the word is this week. Uh, recalcitrant. recalcitrant. But but also you know the names of authors like you know Franz Grillparzer. I embroider that all over the place because I just can't believe that somebody has the name Grillparzer and it makes me so happy. And there is a Grillparzer tort. So right away. All the things in my life, the cake and the name and the writer, it's all there. Talk about
0: Ich habe genug. <laughs> ich habe genug. Which is a beautiful dress hanging in the apartment of Gail Toei and Stephen Doyle. It's one of my favorite things you've ever created. Can you give us a little bit of a sense of the backstory? Because it is an embroidered dress.
2: Yeah. Well, uh, the Ishaba is a Bach cantata. And when I first heard it, I thought it's like I, I've had it. I, you know, I can't take it anymore. But basically it means, not basically, it means I have enough. I have enough. And it's an incredible thing to, you know, it's a wonderful thing to say I have enough because then you really are centered in what you have. So I was doing a lot of embroidery and um, different quotes go to quotes. When my mother died, I did these very large panels of embroidery. And the embroidery was a counterpoint to painting because it's very, very slow. And uh, as an illustrator, you work quickly and as an embroiderer, You work very slowly. So I was able to, you know, have the dress made and embroider on it and have this sense of this flowing thing on the wall that is not meant to be on the wall but should be on the wall. You mentioned the ballet you're working on. Um,
0: John Hagenbotham is a choreographer who was a dancer with Mark Morris, and he choreographed Isaac Mizrahi's production of Peter and the Wolf, for which you danced the duck part in the tutu and the flippers. And it was uh, very interesting comic role, and I believe you became friends at that point. And he wanted to work with you on a ballet together, loosely based on some of principles of uncertainty, I believe. So um, I believe this is going to be coming out in
2: 2017 at BAM. Uh, We've been working on this, trying to create—he's obviously the choreographer, I am uh, not—but But based on my inspirations and work and how I'm looking at things and the sense of my movement on stage, because I, you know, I had always said that I I was waiting for Pina Bash to call me for 30 years. I was waiting for Pina Bash to call me to say, come on over and and like, you know, do something with us. And she didn't. But uh, so John is my Pina. And in a way, uh, he's throwing me into a whole new world where I will be performing also. And so, you know, it's it's terrifying and exhilarating. In every way, and we're talking a lot about poetry. We're reading a lot of Baudelaire and uh, Lydia Davis, uh, and and talking interesting about combination. Yeah, no, it's 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 actually amazing how how you can well, what's inspiring at the time, and why are those things influencing you so. Uh, We're learning a laurel and Hardy dance that is so charming. You can't believe it. Anyway, so there are so many different elements in this. And for me, the last thing I ever want to do is act. I mean, that would be, you know, just like anathema, if that's the word of the month. And so... That should be. Let's do that. Let's use that word. Anathema to me. So I'm hoping that we create a piece that reflects a certain kind of honesty, a certain kind of whimsy. So some kind of intersection of pathos and wit and the story of a day. And will you be a principal dancer in the ballet? I (laughs) will. I will be a principal. Without principles, I will be a performer. I won't say dancer. I'll say, uh, as they say, movement practitioner, though that sounds too clinical. I will I will be one of the performers for sure, unless he fires me. And you never know. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about your collaboration with
0: Rick Myrowitz. You have created together the famous New Yorker cover, New Yorkistan. So can you explain what that cover is?
2: It was um, in response to 9-11 and the trauma and the tragedy that everybody felt. And we uh, started talking about what all of these these tribes and how nobody knew what was going on. And then we started talking about New York and then about the neighborhoods in New York. And so it's a spoof, in a way, of a tribal city. New York is broken up into different neighborhoods, like uh, uh, the Mullahs and Wall Street and the Easy Pashtuns for Easy Pass and... Um, Pashminas for the Upper East Side, you know. But working with Rick is is actually an incredibly powerful relationship because uh, we're great friends and we can be incredibly uh, hurtful <laughs> with each other, aka honest with each other. And we both have a love of language and playing with words. And so we, after that, we did the subway, the New York City subway map, where we took all the words off and put food instead of every stop and every single word on the map. It was a food reference. And You've so done a lot of op-eds, a lot of arts done, yeah. for The New York yeah. Times as right. well. We just did a, we did a piece on uh, New Year's Day on uh, the state we're in. So the ongoing interest, he's curious about a million different things. And so that's wonderful. And he's curious about things that I'm not interested in. He tells me about politics, and I wish he wouldn't, but he does. And so uh, there's, a, a, there's a really nice balance of interests. So it's um, funny and fun. You've also collaborated with your son, This is true, Alex Kalman. And it's
0: so interesting because it's not only a collaboration with your son, but it's also a collaboration with your mother. I know. So can you
2: describe what you did with Alex and with Sarah? So Alex Kalman, my son, uh, is the director of the smallest museum in, in New York and perhaps in the world in an elevator shaft on Corland Alley, and it's called Museum. It's really a hole in the wall on a shoestring budget, and he's curated installations that reflect... Our life in this, in the kind of anthropological design, vernacular, social commentary world, with a, also with a sense of humor. And then he had another little space that opened up down the alley. And when my mother died, I wanted to open a you know, museum of her closet in her apartment on Horatio Street, but that didn't work out. So we kept all of her things. And 11 years later, he and I created an installation that's on this alley. It looks like a diorama in the Museum of Natural History with a glass front and a light bulb. And she wore only white, so it's a very graphic and stunningly beautiful, organized, neat-as-a-pin closet. And so uh, that's what we worked on together and created Sarah Berman's Closet. And is it still on exhibit now? It's not on exhibit now, but it's going to another place. It's going to the Met. Tell us about that, Myra Kelvin. So if all goes well and they don't change their minds in the middle of the night... um, It's going to go to the American wing of the Metropolitan Museum as an installation, uh, as a counterpoint to the lavish and extravagant dressing rooms and furniture of the wealthy. So this is one woman who didn't have any money, who came from Belarus, in her apartment in Horatio Street, and how that life is also important, and that should be also in a museum and celebrated.
0: And I believe that the Met is one of your favorite places on Earth. You think that it's It's a sublime
2: museum. The Met is the best place on
0: Earth. And you go there all the time. (laughs) No, I'm there once a week for sure. And so it feels, again, this word that, that seems to come up a lot when thinking about Myra Kalman, really serendipitous, that... The closet should end up in this place that's become your second home in many ways.
2: I know. It's a complete it's so many full circles that I don't even know what to do. I know. Do. It's like but, a, it's like a spirograph. Yeah, it's but I'm immensely grateful. I'm truly
0: the last thing I wanna ask you about are your Buddha shoes. Huh. Um, I know that they're a bit too big. Um, Talk about why you have these shoes and what they mean to you.
2: Well, I was in England at um, the It's ho- Sissinghurst, which is Vita Sackville West's incredible home and the incredible gardens. And nearby, uh, this is in Kent in England, and it's, you know, it's central casting beautiful there. And so I went to a little village and I went to the thrift shop and bought these perfect brown shoes that, Oxfords, that were a little bit too big for me. But they were too perfect to turn down. So they're probably like two sizes too big. And so I started wearing them, uh, looking like one of those people that you look at on the street saying, oh my God, I hope I don't end up that way. And it made me walk really slowly. Mm. So uh, I spend a lot of time walking in a course and I'm, and I'm observing all the time, but this is really pushing it to an extreme. So I, I said, those are, you know, the, my being in the moment very much in the moment, otherwise you're going to fall on your face, shoes.
0: Before I let you leave, Myra, I want to quote a quote. (laughs) This is the first time I'd ever read this particular quote, and you referred to it in an interview, and it's a quote by Einstein. And I think that it, it so perfectly sums up what you do for the world. The only reason for time is so that everything does not happen at once. You never know when a truly significant, funny, or moving moment might suddenly appear or how they later appear in an illustration or a painting or a story. So thank you for all of your beautiful, life-affirming illustrations and paintings and stories, Myra Kelman.
2: Thank you very much. It's very sweet of you.
0: For more information about Myra Kelman and all of her magnificent work, head on over to her website, myrakelman.com. This is the 11th anniversary of Design Matters. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
1: Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Mark Dudlick. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.
0: You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.